if you're explaining, you're losing, or so said Ronald Reagan. But not so for the BBC's explainer-in-chief, Ros Atkins, whose video explainers go viral. And he has a tried-and-true method honed from his university days and across years on radio and TV. The Art of Explanation is his new book, where he lays it out. I talked to Ros to tell us about the anatomy of an explanation. These are the things that I'm trying to achieve when I'm communicating well, whether I'm writing an email or a report or if I'm going on the TV or if I'm having a conversation with a doctor or if I'm negotiating with someone. Lots of different situations that we're all that we're all in. And one thing you learn as a broadcaster is that if what you're saying isn't very interesting, people turn off. And so there's a really urgent need when we're communicating to keep in mind that people almost always have the option to tune out. And Mm. so making sure that you're aware of that, that you can't assume people are going to pay attention to you, that you're going to work for their attention and make the case that they should. Um, I also like to emphasize context because, of course, in the news, we understand that if an event happens, that event's consequence to the people that we're telling about it uh, well, that's that's dictated by the context in which the event has happened. And similarly, if you were working in sales and telling your boss, well, I've made this many sales this month, it would, of course, be relevant to know the context of what happened the month before or what's happened over the last six months or you know whatever the case may be. And so context for me is a really vital way of making what you have to say relevant. And then, I mean, there are 10 aspects to the anatomy of a good explanation, but I think the the kind of most important one really is simplicity in that we all, when we are communicating, perhaps lean towards putting in words or information that don't need to be there or phrases that are overly complicated or vocabulary that's not easily understood. And there's a pretty simple equation, which is if we can get what we want to say in the most simple, consumable, helpful form that we can and relevant as well, we give ourselves the best chance of people paying attention. And that's true whether you're writing an email, whether you are having a conversation with your kid's school, whether you're going to an appointment or, in our case, whether you're doing a news story. And this is something that you began crafting this system right back as far as when you were at university. Yeah, I, I grew up in south the southwest of England in a county called Cornwall, which is kind of pretty much in the middle of nowhere. And um, I was a keen history student and I was lucky enough to get into Cambridge University to study history. And I think I'd only ever been to Cambridge for about 24 hours before I turned up there for the first term. And it was all pretty daunting, frankly, and it got more daunting once the essays started being set because the way that uh, Cambridge taught history was largely to give you a, a new essay question each week on a subject you may not know anything about. They'd give you a long list of books and say, see you next week. And there wasn't a whole lot of other support. So it's quite a daunting prospect to produce, you know, several thousand words of analysis on a historical event or or issue on something that you didn't necessarily know very much about a few days ago. And I just felt a bit overwhelmed by it. And I thought, well, I'm going to need to plot my way through this. And and the way I tried to plot through it was to develop uh, a process where I went through several steps. So I wasn't expecting myself to feel coherent and across the subject immediately. Mm. I allowed myself to to work through this step by step by step. And of course, it didn't work first time round, but bit by bit and week by week and term by term, this process really supported me to do better, frankly, to write better essays, to offer better analysis. And so that's what started at university. But at the time, it was just to write history essays. The thing that 
really kind of changed how I saw it was further on in my mid-20s when I was unemployed and struggling to get gigs and struggling to get going. And I suddenly realized that this process for identifying what I wanted to say, well, I could use that in a whole range of situations well outside of writing a history essay. And that was the penny drop moment. You kind of learned it the hard way, though, didn't you? Yes, I, well, I did. I, there's a, there's <laughs> an example. Talk- yeah, there's an example in the book about um, an interview that you uh, yes. ended up going to that sounds a, a bit yeah. traumatic, actually. Yeah, it was. It was a little bit. It was traumatic in its own way. I mean, the, the, this was an interview with the Independent newspaper, and so I did lots of preparation. I thought, you know, what am I going to wear? I thought about what news stories do I need to be able to talk about. So I took it seriously, really seriously, because mm. it was a a chance when I didn't have many. And I don't recall exactly who was there, but they were pretty senior, I think. And I, but I always remember the first question. This guy just went, "So, what do you want to do for us?" And as I was speaking, I realized that I had nothing specific to say. I wasn't clear on why I was there, what mm. I was asking for from them, what role I might do, why I thought I might be suited to that role. I had nothing. All I had was some general musings on the news of the day or the news of that week. But that wasn't really what was being tested out. And so I think I say in the book, and I, it's true right now as I'm talking to you, I can feel it like it was yesterday because mm. I knew in that first answer that my chance was slipping away. And and sure enough, it, it did. And to be absolutely clear, the people in the room were lovely. And if I'd been on the other side of the table, I would probably have uh, not called me back either. But <laughs> the, the lesson I took from it, though, was that when we are communicating, we're not just communicating on general subjects. For example, if you go to the doctor and you have a headache, let's say, you're not just going in to say, in general terms, I've had a headache. What you really want to go in is say, I've had headaches at these different points, and this is the treatment I've had so far for them. These are the painkillers I've taken, which have worked or not worked. You would give a lot of purposeful information because you're looking for outcomes. And that's true whether you're doing news stories or going to the doctor or writing a job application or having a job interview don't just need to think about what are the subjects that I want to talk about. You need to think about what do I want to say on those subjects? Mm. What's the purpose of me communicating? And the purpose of me being in that room at the Independent was to outline the role I thought I could do for them and why I thought I could do it. And I hadn't prepared that or thought about that at all. And I paid for it. Mm. Is this something that some people largely do without realising? Well, definitely. I mean, there are lots of brilliant examples of great communication all around us, and some of that will be deliberate and some of that will be chance. And, And frankly, that's true of all of us, too. And one of the things that, you know, I really learned when I was getting going as a BBC News presenter is, you know, I sought out lots of advice from from other more experienced presenters. And and quite often the advice would be, you know, make sure you watch yourself back, make sure you listen to yourself back. And one of the things I found and this might ring true to everyone listening, is that when we review how we're doing something, whether in a professional context or elsewhere, we tend to concentrate on the things that we're doing badly. Uh, We tend to see those much more clearly than the things that we're doing well. Mm. Now, of course, it's important to spot when you're not doing something well, but it's equally important to spot when you are doing something well and to think, okay, that worked. I'm going to do that again. And it's also really useful when you can feel someone communicating well with you to think, hold on, well, I can feel that that's worked, but why did it work? Hmm. And as I was going through my, uh, you know, the early years of my career at the BBC in my late 20s and into my 30s, 
I became completely consumed with this. So I would be, you know, watching a current affairs program or reading a book or looking at an article or having a conversation with someone or any number of different situations. And if I could think, hold on, they're really making this very clear for me. I'm really listening to them. I would try and stop and think, well, what have they done there? And if I could spot it, I'd make, I'd jot it down. When you get it right or when someone gets it right, if you can spot what they've done and remember it, and perhaps use it yourself next time, then you work up a whole set of techniques that will allow you to communicate well. Now, the beauty of radio is that I'm sitting here in a studio and I'm able to have notes and I've got various things printed out and and my scroll, you know, scribbled all over things. That's not really something you can get away with on TV. So that jump to when you're doing communication without notes, whether that's, you know, speaking to a camera or whether it's speaking to an audience without notes. What does that bring to the equation when you when you have the safety net taken away? Well, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, I remember in the early days of being on the TV, I was mainly presenting traditional news bulletins. So I'd be using autocue, which would very much help me to stay on track. But after I became a bit more established in the middle of the 2010s, my editors started to send me to different stories abroad. For example, uh, in 2015, when the Greek debt crisis was playing out, Mm. this was when Greece was struggling to service its national debt. It was the biggest story in the world for a while. And the BBC sent me off to a rooftop in Athens and I stood there in the sun. And for hours and hours and hours, I would be on air talking about a fiendishly complicated but incredibly important story without notes, without knowing the questions that I was going to be asked and without knowing how the story would twist and turn. And this seemed to me quite daunting. And so I started to to experiment with memory techniques. Mm. And the thing that I found really exciting about them, particularly a quite basic memory technique called chunking, which is essentially where you say, okay, I want to st- I want to talk about, let's take the Greek example. I want to talk about the latest political developments in Athens today. So I'd remember a chunk of information as politics. And then within that, there might be three or four or five particular points that I wanted to remember, but I'd remember it all as a single chunk, or there might be a second chunk about the protests. And I might want to say the number of protesters who were involved or what a protest leader had said, or if there had been any unrest and on and on we went. And I found that if I could assemble these chunks of highly distilled pieces of information, but within themes, all I needed to do was to remember to to remember the themes. And once I'd remembered that, it would unlock all the information within that. And so I would be, I mean, you feel like a bit of 11 doing it, but mm. I'd be on the rooftop in Athens talking to myself between being on air, practicing handling this information, particularly within these chunks of information that I'd assembled. And that was a really exciting moment because it opened up all sorts of possibilities for how I could uh, speak in public, whether in TV or not. And, you know, I'm using these same techniques I experimented with on that rooftop in Greece whenever I'm giving talks. So I'm giving talks that are really quite long, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, quite comfortably without notes, not because I'm in any way special, just because that I've managed to find these memory techniques which have allowed me to make that quite daunting prospect feel pretty manageable. For you, clearly there is an element that is about preparation. But how much does that balance with adrenaline? Big story breaks and you're told, right, you're on in 10 minutes. How do you prepare? Well, 
we all end up having to speak in situations that we don't expect. And in our case, it's when a big news story happens. And you're right, when something really significant ha happens, the, the volume in the newsroom goes up, there's an urgency to the conversations, there's a there's an energy to the to the work that we have to do. And actually, I always find in those moments to be wary of adrenaline. And I'm you know, a big advocate of even when there is a huge time pressure, if I'm going into the studio, just taking even 10 seconds to go, hmm. okay, what do we know what's happened? What do we want to say? What do we definitely not know at the moment? What are the questions that we need to acknowledge that at the moment we can't answer? And just pause and think about what I want to communicate. Even those seconds of preparation in that moment where time is is short can be incredibly valuable. Hmm. I'm interested about the explainer videos and you mentioned that, you know, some years ago, about five years ago, you began thinking about how can we make chunks that will be more easily, you know, used on social media or easier for people to share. And I suppose is this a response as well with the YouTube channel about reaching a new audience, about a response to social media and the changing way that people are not just coming across the news, but actively seeking the news in a completely different way than linear TV, linear radio? I mean, the short answer to that is, is yes. I'll give you a, a slightly mm. more detailed answer. But, but really, the, the, the whole process behind the explainers happened from a moment in 2019, which perhaps, uh, you know, points us towards a broader lesson, however we're communicating, which was that when I'd come up with the outside source format back in, I think we started in 2013, I had had two aspirations. One was to create a TV program that did news in a different way. And I think by most measures, we'd managed to do that. And it was, we had a good slot in the schedule. We were, I hope, reasonably successful. But my second explicit ambition when we came up with the format was that it should create clips that would do very well in a digital arena, YouTube, social media, and so on. And by the summer of 2019, I had to be honest with myself that the latter part of the equation wasn't happening. And so there's a kind of important lesson there for us, which is we're all trying to communicate in lots of different ways. But we do need to be willing to go, the thing that I thought would work isn't working. So that was my conclusion in the summer of 2019. And I thought, well, what can I do that, that might have a better chance of working? And to your point, you know, I sat down and, well, I didn't just sit down and stay sitting down for four months, but I sat down multiple times over several months thinking about what is it that could give us a better chance? And I concluded a few things. One was that I needed to make uh, these clips from my TV program specifically for digital uh, platforms. So we redesigned elements of the program so they would look better on mobile, for example. I was also, hmm. there was a palpable sense that people wanted journalists to be more blunt and more direct about what was true and what wasn't true, particularly with reference to what politicians were saying. And so I experimented with tone and language to see if we could be still impartial and factual and all the things we'd want to be, but more direct in how we were talking about it. And then the other thing I you know, took an educated guess on was that sometimes when big stories are happening, they can feel overwhelming. There are so many different sources of information on the story coming at you. You almost don't know where to start. Long articles, mm. TV programs, tweets, uh, videos, and so on, lots and lots of things. And quite reasonably, not everyone's going to consume as much news as I do as someone who, who works in the news industry. So I had this thought, and I called them all-in-ones, but the name never caught on. I had this idea, could you create a video that had 
all of the fact checking, all of the latest reporting, all of the context, all of the necessary elements that you would need to understand this story in a reasonably comprehensive way. Could you put them all in one place in around five minutes was my was my goal. And I thought, well, if you could do that, it might have a chance. And then the other thing I was interested to see was obviously there's lots of heat on social media and on uh, YouTube. One of the you know biggest growth areas for journalism has been opinion journalism. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But as a BBC News journalist, I can't share my opinions and, and I don't want to mm. either. So I tried to make a feature of the fact that I was an alternative to all of that opinion-based journalism and to say, okay, I'm going to turn up in these areas where there's a lot of heat and try and offer some calm, if you like. Do we also uh, have a an element of an assumed level of knowledge that people have, whether it's about the war in Gaza or the war in Ukraine or Brexit or, you know, the Greek political system? Is there a level of assumed knowledge that actually not everybody has? And people don't necessarily I mean, want to be the one who puts their hand up and say, oh, I actually have no idea how that works. I don't know how the economy works. I don't know how <laughs> this goes on. But if you give people what they want, instead of shutting people out from news stories, you're actually welcoming yeah. them in. Well, I, you know, I have to confess, I'm often the person putting my hand up and saying, I don't understand this element of a story. I think one of the most important things we can all do as journalists is to acknowledge the limits of our knowledge. And as someone who's a generalist, and I do lots of different subjects every week, you know, there are definite limits to, to what I know. And quite reasonably, there are limits to what a lot of our viewers and listeners and readers know. So I've always been very keen to not assume knowledge. I think that it's a, you know, whether you're making a news story or you're simply communicating, maybe you're giving a speech at a conference or you're talking on a panel at a seminar or whatever it might be. If you start assuming knowledge and people in the audience don't understand what you're referencing, there's there's almost no more effective way of getting people to tune out. Mm. A couple of other things I would quickly like to talk to you about. One is the 50-50 project. Uh, which you came up with a few years ago, I suppose. First of all, um, how would you describe that? And how did you persuade your colleagues over the line? The 50-50 project was something that a small group of us started on Outside Source, our, our news programme back in early 2017. And the BBC at that point had had a long-standing commitment to uh, having an equal number of male and female contributors within our journalism and within our news programs. And I was aware that Outside Source was not managing to do that. And I was interested to experiment with ways that we could approach the the, the challenge of doing better on that differently. And so we came up with a very simple system of self-monitoring where we would gather data on who the contributors in our program were each day, and we'd share that data. And then at the end of the month, we would see how we'd gone um, in that given month. And to our uh, delight, it started to work very, very quickly in our representation of women within our program increased pretty sharply and, and quite quickly over a short number of months. And because we'd started it as an experiment within the newsroom, it started to grow organically. So other programs heard about it and said, well, could we try it? And of course, we said, yeah, this is how we're doing it. And so and then they found that it was helping them and 
it grew organically across the organization. So it started on one program in 2017. And by 2018, there were over 100 programs doing it. And in the end, it spread across BBC News and then across almost all of the BBC's content and then actually outside the BBC as well. And, you know, you're asking how we persuaded colleagues to do it. Well, I think a couple of things helped. First of all, we had the data to show that it was helping us. So that definitely meant that we were able to make a powerful case. And so we paid really careful careful attention to making sure we could explain the idea of 50-50 in a simple, consumable, relevant way. And I think that helped as well. On your drum and bass DJing, I was quite surprised. I don't know why I was surprised when I heard that that was something that you had done quite a bit of in the past. Um, what is it about drum and bass? Oh, I've always loved drum and bass. I mean, when I so I was a teenager in the you know late eighties, early nineties, and in the early nineties in the UK, you know, dance music was sweeping the country, and particularly a couple of places, including where I grew up, Cornwall, where there was a pretty big scene. So. You know, when I was in what we say call the sick form here, when I was 17, 18, everyone had dance music cassettes and were trading all the different DJ mixes that were coming from the, the big parties that were being put on. And, and drum and bass was part of that equation. So I was kind of fell for it in its first flush and just have always stayed stayed interested in it. I mean, at first I was just like everyone else getting the cassettes and, and just listening to it at, at parties or in my bedroom. But over time I thought, well, maybe I should buy some of the records and see if I can give it a go myself. I should say I was a very, very uh, amateur DJ. I was far from, it was <laughs> definitely never paid the bills, but I was an enthusiastic <laughs> amateur. And I, and I used to play drum and bass and lots of other types of music as well for, you know, the whole of my twenties really. And it was, only I remember doing a festival in Regent's Park, one of the big parks in London, um, just a couple of weeks before our eldest daughter, Alice, was born. And that was the last gig I did because once once uh, we had kids and, and family life took a turn, um, you know, other things had to quite rightly take priority. And then so I didn't DJ for years and years and years. And then I was asked about it in a quick Q&A interview in a newspaper here. It must have been just a couple of lines, nothing more, but a producer at one of the BBC's main music stations saw the interview and thought, ah, maybe you know, we could tempt him back. And they asked me if I would like to do a 30-minute drum and bass mix for them. Mm. And of course, I said yes before they could change their mind. <laughs> and and that kind of that's kind of triggered a whole series of events. I ended up, you know, doing a couple of nights in the centre of London with one of my drum and bass heroes, one of the best known, you know, drum and bass DJs. And I've done a few things. So a few things have have come for it. None of which I really um, expected. And of course, whenever I DJ alongside these giants of the scene, I feel, uh, you know, I kind of that they're towering over me. But I I practice hard and I do my best to do my best to keep up. If we could play any drum and bass song out of this interview, which one would you recommend? Oh, I'd go for uh, I'd go for Atlantis by LTJ Bookham, the DJ Markey remix, because Atlantis, that track, I can remember the first time I heard it. Everyone had it on cassette. Every, it was on all the sets when I was about 17 or 18. And if you play it now, it still sounds uh, it still sounds brilliant. Did you ever hear the Bill Bailey um show where he actually yes. used the BBC theme tune as a race I did, track. I went to it. That yeah. was years ago. I went to the, yeah, I went to that. 
Uh, yeah, it's great. Well, the 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 guy behind the BBC uh, uh, news music is a you know is a serious music producer, so it's got very high production values. And yes, you're right. I think Bill Bailey was the first person to do that. I think there have been various other people who've had goes at, at remixing it or, or using it in one way um, or another. But I think Bill Bailey was the first, and um, yeah, it, it worked. I think I remember every, it well. Every time I hear that tune, that's what I always think of. It takes me right back to, to seeing <laughs> Bill Bailey's show. Hey, look, Ross. Thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate. Appreciate you talking to us. Great pleasure to be on. Thanks for asking me. And that is BBC Explainer in Chief Ros Atkins there. The Art of Explanation is his new book. This is the Atlantis song. Uh, LTJ Bookham.